Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the conversation on TYT Network. Uh, joining us now is Ken Klippenstein. Uh, he uh, was Washington um, reporter for The Nation and uh, of course was with us at the Young Turks here, uh, but is now a reporter for The Intercept. Uh, Ken, welcome back, brother. Hey, good to be with you, Jank. Yep. Uh, all right, uh, Kenny Clips, I want to run the IRS story by you. Uh, ProPublica broke a story that we uh, talked about yesterday on the show um, where uh, they found the tax returns for the 25 richest men in America. And they looked at them for about a dozen years or so and found out they're not paying very much taxes at all. Um, now, uh, the Biden administration had a reaction, um, which since they wanna raise taxes on the rich, theoretically, you would think like, yeah, look at that, right? Um, no, of course, the reaction was, let's crush the person who leaked this. So um, what's your reaction to their reaction? Well, unfortunately, this reminds me of a lot of other cases of um, whistleblowers. And I should make clear that we don't know exactly uh, where this came from. But uh, this pattern of responding to a disclosure that is of great interest to the public and saying, you know, the real scandal here isn't what was disclosed, it was that it was disclosed. And so um, the IRS made a statement uh, within hours of the story uh, going live saying, we're going to find out who did this, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Um, and so it really gives you a sense of their priorities. Uh, and by the way, IRS is an agency that itself uh, has, you know, essentially said in the past, uh, you know, we don't have the resources to enforce tax law against everyone. So, uh, you know, we're going to go after uh, poorer and working people because it's cheaper and more effective for our limited resources to do that. But, um, you know, lo and behold, they have the resources to immediately announce that they're going to go after this whistleblower again within hours of this story coming out. So it's very clear where their priorities are. Yeah, so um, on the other hand, it is an interesting question, right? So um, your taxes are among the most private things. These folks are not running for office. Uh, and if the, uh, somehow your taxes leak from the IRS, that would actually be a scandal, right? That would be wrong. Um, and so, and these 25 are the richest 25 in the country, but they are private citizens. So as a reporter though, and an investigative reporter, how do you feel about a leak like that? Yeah, I think it's good to ask these questions of ethics. Um, I often find myself asking this, you know, does this person's prominence in the public sphere justify uh, writing about them? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules, but I imagine that looking at individuals like billionaires who themselves, you know, have as much collective wealth as, you know, a huge portion of uh, the working population in this country, there's a balancing act. I know in, in news media, legally, uh, wherein you have to establish that someone is a public figure, and you know, in that case, uh, it's kind of looking at you know how much relative power does this individual have? Is this person extremely famous? Are they an elected official? Are they you know extraordinarily wealthy? And um, it, the sort of uh, test 
that the courts have established is, you know, if they're sufficiently public and sufficiently powerful, then, you know, if it, it if it's enough in the public interest to find out what's going on here, which by the way, that's one of the scandals here is that all of this stuff is happening in secret. If you want to learn about the government, you know, I can criticize the government all day long, but I can at least find out about it from the Freedom of Information Act. You know, there's a there's an assumption at least of transparency. None of that applies to not just wealth, but you know, particularly the wealthy. And so it's always been unclear exactly, you know, how they're, you know, using the tax system. And and now we know. And and the judgment on the part of ProPublica was that the public interest outweighed the privacy interests of these of these extraordinarily wealthy individuals. And I think that's reasonable. Yeah, and in this case, we found out, for example, and they they did something interesting. They said not relative to their income, but relative to their wealth, how much taxes did they pay? And it was an interesting analysis in that sense. We found out Warren Buffett is pay, paid about 0.1%. Jeff Bezos paid under 1% of, it, of their wealth in that stretch of time. So you get this, and whereas, and to me, Ken, I, I thought the most interesting part was, Collectively, they'd made $1.1 trillion in 2018, those 25 guys. And that's the equivalent of 14.3 million Americans. And they paid 1.9 billion in taxes, the top 25 did. But collectively, the 14 million Americans paid $143 billion in taxes. So when you see a stat like that, it really does go to the public interest, which is my God. If you do that kind of analysis, you see how much more of the accumulated wealth of middle class people that our government takes as opposed to the rich. Yeah, nothing you do in terms of reporting on what's going on here is going to be able to provide more insight and be as much of a disadvantage to them as all the advantages that they enjoy. Uh, that allow them to hide their wealth and what they're doing. I mean, uh, you know, these wealthy individuals uh, go to great lengths to obscure, obfuscate. You know, as an investigative reporter, um, you know, I'm looking at uh, flight logs, things like that. Um, just to give you an example, there uh, a lot, lot of wealthy individuals will uh, buy LLCs um, for the express purpose of obfuscating uh, what their flight patterns and, and travel patterns are. Now, if you're an ordinary individual, you know, of modest wealth, you're not going to be able to do these kind of things. Uh, just to give you that one example, but there's you know innumerable examples with respect to tax law that they're able to do to to you know use uh, chains of shell companies to hide where they're uh, moving money around. So they already enjoy greater privacy than uh, the general public does. I think in a case like this, um, it's not going to um, you know disadvantage them uh, uh, such that on balance they're not already enjoying uh, more privacy than the rest of us do. Yeah, so at the same time, um, Brian Stelter was getting heat today for a very soft interview he did with Jen Psaki. Um, and you know, the, the question that he asked earlier um, when he asked her like, what is the press getting wrong about the Biden administration? <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Ken, is it me or, or does the press seem infinitely softer on the Biden administration than they were on the Trump administration? Oh, absolutely, and I think some of that is that um, you know Trump was scandal prone, and and uh, I you know I don't know how to say this. I, I'm just gonna be straight with you. He had a whole lot more scandals than the Biden administration does. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't scrutinize the Biden administration as well? Of course not. Um, so you know that being the case, I, I do think that among the press corps, there is an attitude of sort of um, PTSD from just the you know light speed kind of. Uh, scandals that we that we you know flew through in the four years of the Trump administration. Now it's kind of like, well, we don't want to be you know overly harsh on this guy after you know we had all this other insanity. But that's exactly how we get into the insanity of the Trump administration 
in the first place is by not holding you know, the Democrats' feet to the fire such that they can become effective leaders or at least you know, brook some kind of response to these criticisms. And then people get angry and then someone else like Trump comes in. So I think those two things are related. Yeah, so Ken, maybe I'm seeing it wrong. I'm asking this genuinely, right? But you're in Washington and you know other reporters, so you have a little bit better sense of it, right? So. It seems like the Biden administration, we've fallen back into the old pattern of having to respond to right wing critiques, whether they make sense or not. So they'll get over the last 24 hours, Kamala Harris has been very aggressively challenged by Lester Holt and others about, hey, how come you haven't done a photo op at the border? I mean, from a left wing perspective, who cares? It's literally a photo op. Who, oh, you weren't physically at the border. And how, did, how does that affect policy? It's just so silly, right? But I'm not seeing a lot of coverage of left-wing critique of Biden, right? I think Biden's administration is totally over. Manchin has torpedoed it, and probably Biden didn't doesn't mind. And I haven't seen almost any of that from the mainstream press. So A, am I seeing that right? And B, is there any hope that the mainstream press will go, Oh yeah, maybe we should look at progressive critique of Biden? Yeah, unfortunately, you're 100% right, Cenk. Um, these, you know, left critiques are not being, um, you know, aired by these kind of mainstream outlets. And and the reason that that's unfair isn't necessarily because you know I I agree or disagree um, with with those critiques. But those these types of critiques are held by a broad swath of the general public. So when you look at the border case that you mentioned, how many, what percent of the public wants to hear about that versus um, the you know. Majority, including majority of Republicans who support the the voter reform bill that Manchin essentially killed with his announcement yesterday, they found that actually half of Republicans support it. In addition to the you know overwhelming majority of Democrats, so clearly it's not that there's a lack of interest on the part of the public among media. I think that there's a sense that oh you know the stupid public wants to hear these kind of frivolous things, so we've got to talk about it. That's not really true. I don't think certainly, insofar as we have evidence, a whole lot more people are interested in hearing about the Pro Act and hearing about you know voter reform, voter reform legislation than are these kind of frivolous topics that get a whole lot of airtime. So that raises a lot of very interesting questions, and you know I could speculate as to why they don't talk about these things. But they're doing a favor to Biden in the sense that now he doesn't have to respond to them because people don't know that there are these left. Criticisms if it's not reported in these mainstream outlets. Yeah, another like again, genuine question as to the feeling in, in DC. So when you talk about bipartisan, I mean to your point on the For the People Act in West Virginia has 71% popularity, including 66% popularity among Trump voters in West Virginia. And then when Manchin says he's blocking it to be bipartisan, I still see most of the outlets, if not all of the outlets in the mainstream press, reporting it as if Manchin is being bipartisan. When it's the exact opposite, according to the polling, right? So, do you see hope that that is going to turn around? That we're going to break through because of social media and Twitter and all the the strength that progressives have more online? Or no, it's not breaking through at all. Nope, nope, nope. They're just going to keep calling what the corporate agenda bipartisan agenda. Well, this is very much up in the air, and that's what the conflict is now. And they have the rest of this month to pass this legislation. And as you alluded to earlier, if they don't. Um, make some you know fundamental adjustment to the filibuster. It seems very unlikely they'll be able to pass any sort of serious legislation uh, for the remainder of 
President Biden's term. So um, it, I, I do want to say that I, I think I don't think that this is a foregone conclusion yet. Um, uh, Manchin in the past has gone back and forth on all sorts of issues. He's the opposite of <laughs> of somebody who uh, you know is going to have any sort of consistency. And you know, my boss Ryan Grimm, he just had a story out today in which he uh, quotes a number of uh, high level uh, you know Republican political operatives uh, and the way they're behaving and the beliefs they're operating under are uh, is extreme anxiety that this could still happen and that Manchin might change his mind under pressure from the very same groups you're describing, progressives um, and liberal Democrats. So. Um, I think that if you know very powerful, well-connected Republicans are still worried about it, this game isn't over yet, uh, and I don't think it is. Yeah, uh, here I'll make a prediction, um, and I hate to say it, but uh, <laughs> I, I think Kristen Sinema is going to flip to Republican. Um, and so, just when Manchin might go in the right direction a little bit on some of these issues, if he does, uh, you're going to lose Sinema anyway. Uh, and and she's going to single-handedly torpedo this entire. Like, do they? She missed the For the People Act. I'm sorry for the the January 6th Commission vote. There's no reason for a Democrat to miss that vote. Uh, the right. only reason you'd miss it is if you're thinking of switching parties. Um, so, uh, iceberg straight ahead. <laughs> okay, let's see what happens. Um, all right, uh, Ken Klobuchar from the Intercept. Uh, thank you. We appreciate you joining us. Great to be with you again. Thanks. All right, back on the conversation. Uh, one of the things I want to do in this segment is solve the mystery of what the hell is going on with Central California. Uh, so I will explain in a minute, but we brought on an expert to do that. He's the mayor of Delano, which is in Central California, and he's running for uh, Congress now, United States Congress, Congress in 21st District, which of course Delano is in. His name is Brian Osorio. Brian, welcome to TYT. Hello, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here today. Uh, no problem. So I want to get into your story uh, in a second. Uh, you're 25 and you're the mayor of a city already. Uh, I, I read your background, first to graduate from high school in your family, first to graduate from college, went to Berkeley. It's an amazing story. Um, but I, I want to talk about Central California. Uh, I don't understand why the 21st district, I'm being literal about this, largely votes for Democrats for president. Um, not always, but largely. Um, but usually votes for Republicans in Congress. Why? <laughs> I would say there are a number of factors uh, that uh, play into this. I think the first one is that we historically have a low voter turnout. In our last midterm election in 2018, the lowest voter turnout was, I believe, 29%. And in uh, CD21, it was uh, 32%. And so, uh, there is some discrepancy in the, uh, the number, number of people who vote for president and then the number of people who vote for Congress. And so, you know, uh, I'll get into it in a bit, but I believe that we need a, a candidate that excites our population, our, our constituents in this area. And, uh, you know, we just haven't had that yet. Yeah, I mean, Central California is where labor rights in a lot of ways, if it didn't start, and it's probably not fair to say that it started there, but it certainly was one of the most important areas for labor rights in American history. Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, etc. And so these legends come from Central California. And 
yes, there's a heavy Latino American population in Central California. Yet it elects some of the most conservative people in the whole country. Devin Nunes is from Central California. In fact, he was from this district earlier. He was a congressman from this district, yours earlier. Kevin McCarthy's in a neighboring district. So voter turnout clearly explains part of it. But is there like this really old school conservative portion? There must be, right? So who are they? Who are the conservatives in this area? So that's a, I would say that's a fascinating point and something that I love to get into with people. So oftentimes we have conservative Democrats who are running for higher office here, whether it's for Congress or whether it's for a state seat. And so there is a lack of options when it comes to representing a Democrat that really represents the needs of the community. And so when you look at the the records of who's holding office in this area, you clearly see that there's a conservative bias towards these elected officials. And so, you know, and then when you trace the money, you can you know, make some of your assumptions yourself. But these are leaders, like you mentioned, or elected officials like Devin Nunez to the north of us and then Kevin McCarthy to the south of us. And in this district, Congressman Valadeo. These are some of the big power players in the nation. And again, you can already imagine the influence of, of big ag, of the oil and gas industry, and these other corporations in the area. Uh, of course, of course, the money's gonna go to the conservative folks because of agriculture, giant companies involved, etc. It's just a shame that it works that they um, that they convince enough folks to either stay home or to vote for the conservative candidates. Okay, so you on the other hand are very progressive. Um, and so how long have you been mayor of Delano? So I've been elected a council member for now two and a half years, but this coincides with my appointment this past December, where two other council members who consider themselves progressive appointed or led the appointment of my unanimous mayorship. Okay, and you on the land did very progressive policies in terms of stopping people's utility bills during the pandemic. You know, talking about LGBTQ rights and etc. And so, if the area population was truly conservative, they would have rebelled. So, what kind of rebellion have you faced? <laughs> quite, a, quite a bit. No. That's the thing that I take into consideration when I'm at these council meetings or at these public events when there is this conservative perspective on things I do. But at the end of the day, I remember that I'm advocating for marginalized communities and people who have been underrepresented in the city of Delano and of course in the surrounding areas. I think the argument is often like, you know, why are we making these social arguments when we're considering policy? But what we have to consider that you know, in the times we're in, in the past couple of years, social justice has been the forefront of policymaking or the most considerate and equitable policymaking. And that's the type of policymaking I wanted to bring here to Delano. And when you really walk people through that reasoning, they start to understand you because oftentimes it's not that clear. And in the area where we define it to be sometimes socially conservative, we don't talk about why Black Lives Matter. We don't talk about how black and Latinos are disproportionately lacking access to healthcare. And so people don't wanna make it a race thing as they say, but really it's in the numbers. And so 
I just, again, just want to bring in equitable policymaking uh, to the forefront. Right. And having those uh, hard conversations are very important in an area where they uh, don't happen often. So, Brian, it, this could be a microcosm of uh, what's happening in the country because Trump won a bigger percentage of the Latino vote than people expected. And so, there's the dichotomy that Latinos are considered minorities in America, but a lot of Latinos are socially conservative and and tend to be a higher percentage of religious folks, right? So how does that play out in your district? Is it do you are there is there a higher percentage of Latinos voting for Republicans or no, not really? And how does that juxtaposition with the socially conservative, but you know? In, in the context of America and the minority camp, uh, how does that play out in your area? Definitely, I would say uh, I would need to do more research into how that split up is in terms of Latinos um, voting for which candidate. I will say that, uh, you know, I, I think you're defining it clearly that there is uh, this sometimes uh, misconception that Latinos will vote blue all the time, as you have seen, as we have seen, whether it was Trump, whether it was. Uh, uh, Romney or Bush, it's a, there's always going to be this fraction of, of Latinos who will vote uh, for Republicans. That said, Latinos want a fighter uh, for them. And it's how you come up across uh, in whatever election it may be. They want someone who's going to advocate and you know really put in the work for them. And so I think it has to do a lot with messaging, but also someone with the track record of doing so. And that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, on this campaign trail, and just showing the people that you know it's a uh, it's not a matter of red or blue, but someone who's really going to be listening to the constituents' needs and will fight for them in Congress. So, um, T.J. Cox uh, was the Democratic congressman uh, who just lost uh, this time around, and we don't know if he's going to run again or not. Uh, so, why not T.J. Cox? Why are you in the race as opposed to T.J. Cox? Uh, so, uh, very good question. Uh, yeah, so transparently, I supported TJ uh, this past election because I, uh, we, our district benefits from having a Democrat with closely aligned values of the district. However, uh, the reason why I'm running uh, is because my story is a story of the Central Valley. I'm the son of Mexican immigrants. I'm the first in my family to graduate from high school and in college. And I, 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 we need someone who can take this story to Washington. Uh, I will run as a progressive candidate, uh, uh, championing Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, and immigration reform. And we really haven't seen that message in this district or even um, across the Central Valley. Okay, and it's so sorry for congress.com, by the way. We'll have the links down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, and there they are right there. Um, so, Brian. Um, how would you increase voter turnout? Because that seems to be the number one problem, as we talked about earlier, in terms of getting Democrats to win in that district. Yeah, so first of all, it starts with the groundwork that many groups are trying to do now, which is focus on voter registration early on, but also educating people how to vote. A few moments ago, I talked about being the first in my family to do multiple things. And oftentimes, as sons and daughters of immigrants, we are the first in our families to vote. And so it's really having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, but also these community meetings uh, that are done in organizing to really push that uh, message across, which is your vote truly matters. And these past two elections in CD21, we've seen that 
where uh, TJ Cox won his election by uh, around 800 votes, and then this past election lost by under 2,000 votes. And so it starts with you know the ground game in organizing our communities to recognize the importance of uh, voting, but two, it's about putting forth a candidate that really embodies the uh, policies that will help this community. And so that's really uh, you know a part of this whole campaign is offering people a different choice, offering them a progressive choice. Um, and that's something that resonated with the people of this district when they voted uh, heavily for Bernie Sanders in 2020. Uh, he won uh, in each of the four counties here. And so uh, those would be the two things that I think will really increase voter turnout. Yeah, so there have been some areas where voter turnout has been an issue with Latinos. And and we just talked about how 21st District is one of those areas. So what is it? Why why would Latinos turn out less than the average voter? Well, there's a number of things, whether it's cultural, whether it's socioeconomic status, you know, I can talk about these things in more depth. But culturally, when we talk about where some of these Latinos come from, whether they're immigrants themselves or you know children of immigrants, when we talk about you know whether it's from Mexico, where they come from corrupt governments, where they become disillusioned with the political process, that's been one of the reasons cited to me when I'm having these conversations with residents. And then two, when again talking with children of immigrant Latinos, they they think about you know. Uh, you know, I wasn't told about the importance of this very early on. And so I think it starts with changing the culture, but again, getting to them very early on and making sure they understand the importance of voting uh, because it's very, very hard to communicate that at times. And especially when people are just coming to you uh, around election time saying like, you know, hey, register to vote, but vote for me. I think there has to be some genuine intentions behind why we're registering people to vote. Because while you know I'm running for Congress, it's also about how do we build a bench for these other state races and local races where the impact can be seen, as I've been trying to do here at the local level. All right, Brian, real quick before we run out of time. Look, I'm not covering your policies that much here because you're clearly very progressive, and people could find out more by going to osorioforcongress.com. So. I'm just curious. I mean, you went to Berkeley, you're really successful. Why politics? <laughs> so I I wasn't born into politics. As I mentioned, I'm the son of immigrants who really try to keep their head down and just put in the work with the limited opportunities that they've had. But the reason why I think that we need to be involved in politics is because if, if we don't, politics will get involved with us and they will make the decisions without people who center equity above everything. And uh, seeing this um, in my studies at Berkeley, and I just graduated from USC a couple of weeks ago with a master's in public policy, it's very important that we have more uh, people uh, championing social justice um, when they're making decisions uh, for communities, especially in marginalized communities that we see across the Central Valley. We often think of California as being this very progressive state, but as you clearly understand, that's not the case in the Central Valley. And we need to do more of championing people's um, values and also meeting them where they're at. And yeah. that's why I've decided to uh, you know, pursue politics uh, early on. All right, I love it. And you're right, that's the place for better or for worse where you can have the most impact. And you're right, California voters are very progressive. 
but our politicians oftentimes are not at all. Dianne Feinstein is deeply conservative, preposterously conservative for California. Well, here's Brian Osorio running as a strong progressive in the 21st district. So Brian, thank you for joining us, appreciate it. No, thank you again for having me. No problem.